I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by my Wall Street. We're taking a break from our usual broadcast this week to bring you something I'm sure that you'll all really enjoy. Earlier this week... Emmett sat down to record an interview with Chris Mayer, the portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital and the author of 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them. In this interview, Emmett quizzes Chris on his strategy for finding stocks that will grow 100-fold, including the two attributes that he looks for in a company that's poised for massive growth. He also asks Chris some listener questions and, of course, he gets some tips on the stocks that Chris really likes the look of right now. So sit back and enjoy this fascinating discussion between two master investors. I will be back as normal next week with the usual stock club. Enjoy. Chris Mayer, author, investor, portfolio manager and co-founder of Woodlock House Family Capital. Welcome to Stock Club. Thank you, Emmett. Good to be on with you. Well, before we dive into your book, Chris, 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them, could you tell me a little bit about your career to date? Sure. I I, uh, I guess I have always, not always, but I got interested in Warren Buffett and investing as a teenager, so I knew I wanted to study finance and investing. That's what I studied in college. And then my first job out of college was uh, in corporate lending. So I, I became a loan officer, loan officer, and made loans to you know regional businesses, and that was that was a great place for an investor to start actually, because you learn a lot about how to do due diligence on a business and how to value them and risks and people and all that good stuff. And then, uh, but I always was still passionate about investing, and I was reading. I remember I was reading lots of investing books. Peter Lynch, you know, was popular then, and so eventually in 2004, I started my own newsletter. And uh, it's just kind of a nights and weekends hobby project. And that did pretty well. And within six months, I made a deal with a publisher in Baltimore. So then I was did that full time, traveled all over the world and compiled a pretty good track record and wrote my books. And then in 2016, I started to work more closely with the Bonner family office. The Bonner family owned the publisher that published my newsletter for all that time. So I got to know them pretty well. And then in uh, 2019, we started Woodlock House, which is a private long only fund partnership. And uh, the Bonner family was uh, my seed investor. Named after an Irish property, I noticed. That's right. Named after a property the Bonner family owns in, in Port Law, Ireland. And that's where I, why I went to, to propose to them to start the fund. We were in Ireland. And so I designed the name and the logo, everything after that property. Beautiful. I saw the logo as a, a kind of representation of the skylight. That's in right. The, very, very nice. Chris, you opened 100 Baggers by saying that you were at a lecture by investing legend Chuck Acker in 2011, where he mentioned a book that he had read in 1972 called 100 to 1 in the Stock Market by Thomas Phelps, who at that time had worked for the Wall Street Journal and Barron's and a whole load of similar prestigious publishers. And it was this book and Phelps that were your springboard to writing 100 baggers. So Mm -hmm. before diving into the attributes of a 100 bagger, can you talk to him about the process you went through to build on Phelps' work and to isolate the characteristics of potentially big winners? 
Yes. So Chuck Ockray was a big influence. Not only did he point me to that book, 100 to 1, which then I read and loved immediately. And I remember I would quote from it when I was in my writings. And it was actually a reader who suggested to me, you know, you should you should update it. I thought, wow, that's a that's a great idea. So, um, yeah, I went about getting the, the data going back from 1962. I was working with another analyst who was more savvy with the with the data than me, but he, he helped compile all this, all this stuff. And, and then I actually went out to Mil- Middleburg to meet with Chuck uh, for the book. And I uh, interviewed him and talked to him about it. He's has 200 baggers to his credit, mm-hmm. uh, Berkshire Hathaway and American Tower. So that, that's how that project got started. And, um, and from then, you know, 100 baggers study was born. Well, that's very interesting because I met Chuck Ackray in around spring 09 and I asked him for his favorite investment idea and he said American Terror. And at that time it was $35. I wrote it down in my diary. It's now $235. (laughs) So I really should have listened. Chris, in your book, you distill, in the final chapter, I think you distill 10 essential principles of a 100 bagger, which I presume are not all equally weighted. And if that's true, could you highlight the top attributes that you look for or the attribute that gets you most excited to find? Yep, I think the easy answer to that is two, two attributes really combined together, make the magic sauce. So the first would be return on capital, some kind of return on capital metric. Um, high return on capital, you need almost all the, you know, the hundred baggers had some high return on capital because you think about it, you have to compile, you know, have to compound your capital over a long period of time to get the hundred bagger. You know, as I say in the book, you know, 25% return annually for 20 years gets you there. It's just a math problem. So you want that high return and then you want a company that can take that and reinvest as much of it as possible back into the business and earn that high return again. And then you just keep going. That's that's the real engine. That's the core. And when I find that in a publicly traded security, that gets me excited. Mm. Every great investor says that. I think uh, something else you said in the book was using a coffee can approach as a crutch. And that once you find a business that has the potential to be a hundred bagger, you really need to give it time. And and I think you said in the book that even the facet hundred baggers in the study needed many, many years to get there, but it's kind of typically 25 to 30 years. Is that right? Yeah, it was kind of a bell curve. And most of the names fell in that 20 to 25 year range. There were some mm. exceptional ones uh, that took four or five um, wow. years, but there were very few. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine mm-hmm. it was a big bell curve. And like over here, there's mm-hmm. exceptional ones, the four, five, seven, eight. Most of them were in that 20, 25 years. And then there were some that were slower compounders that, and took 35, 40 years to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What sources of information do you use, Chris, for your research? So, I mean, we have every single tool available to us online these days. Which yeah. ones are your go-to tools for researching a stock? Well, um, I'm still... Very old school about it. I go through the original filings and and then transcripts. One of the great things about investing these days is the, is getting transcripts quarterly. I mean, those used to be rare. I remember when I started investing, I had to write away for annual reports and, and it was much less information. So now uh, those would be the primary things. I, I use a lot of the, the expert networks, um, like in practice as an example, where you, where you get to interview people who used to work at the company, former executives, former employees. That's a really good source of scuttlebutt, if you want to say, on a name. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the kind of research uh, that I do. Talking to, ideally, to 
no other management team, but also people used to work there, trying to get a sense of the competition, and then going through their original filings, reading annual reports as far back as possible, even going through transcripts years and years ago, because then you can see kind of how a story develops over time, whether they do what they say they're going to do, what you know, what changes. So those are those. That's the key part of the of the process. Good old fashioned research. In fact, when I started investing first, my dad would get as many quarterly reports for a company as possible and yeah. hand them to me to read. And I, we have, uh, or rather he had in, his, in our family home, these uh, filing boxes full to the brim with, with company names written on the side, whether it was Starbucks or Disney or whatever. And I completely get it. You get into the thought process of the management team and the cadence of the numbers that are reporting when you sit down with a pen and paper and start to look at the patterns that are coming out quarter after quarter. So I do love and appreciate that old fashioned uh, research approach. Yeah, that's it. And that's a strange to think about that now, but I had that as well. I used to have, you know, I would get mail away for them and I'd have companies with, you know, their, their stacked annual reports going back however many years. And yeah, it was, uh, it was cumbersome. It took up a lot of space. It was it slow. <laughs> we were I so felt spoiled guilty now. dumping all of those. Oh, I know. I did too. Beautiful. I used to have a bunch. I've gotten rid of all of them. Uh, <laughs> Me too. They always had a beautiful cover on them, mm -hmm. which was really heavy set paper with all the cost, all the, it's like, it was like getting an album, you know, back mm -hmm. in, in the day, yes. you get a, an album from your new band where you used to catch yeah. up to see how these guys looked and what they were doing and reading the small notes. And that's kind of gone now. I, I have to say, I used to love getting specifically the annual report where there was lots of color and kind of yep. context and the opening letter from the CEO gave an yeah. insight into his or her uh, view of where they were headed. So yeah, I totally get that. Chris, can I ask you a few questions from listeners that were submitted in advance, mostly uh, via Twitter? You answer a lot of these in your book, but I'm going to fire them at you wholesale sure. and unfiltered. Let's so well, let's, let's just hit you with a quick fire round before we move on. So I have a question here from Stefan Popo uh, via Twitter. And he said, question to Chris, how do you think about adding two winners and losers in this environment. Yeah. Well, I love to add the winners. That's ideal. You mm -hmm. you buy and it's working and you keep buying all along. That's the preferred MO. But of course, unless you bottom tick everything you buy, you're going to be down on it at some point. So yes, mm -hmm. you have to be comfortable uh, adding even when they're down. And, and you know, he added this environment uh, because I, I know why he said that because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. But you know, I try to remind investors that this is nothing the world hasn't seen before. Uh, everybody likes to think that somehow this environment is special and different. And, oh, my God, we got to do something different now. But, you know, market has been through a lot, wars and inflations in the past. And so I think that it's very important that you have a good process and that you stick stick to it, even when, especially when uh, times like this, when the market's down and it gets a little scary. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it's interesting for you to say there. I, I have not met a master investor and I count yourself amongst that class that has not been down significant amount on virtually all of their stocks at some point after buying. I, I did a, a review of, I think it was 450 of my buys spanning 17 year period and only something like two and a half percent of them never went into the red after I bought. And I'm very delighted and proud that I have a couple of hundred baggers, but I tell you for the first few months, it's always a bit of a car crash. Anyway, so we have another question here, Chris, from three things uh, via Twitter. And he asked, how do you think about portfolio construction? Now, if you think about a hundred X folio, we want more shots on the goal 
uh, I'll, uh, do we want more shots on the go? Says three things. Are super concentrated folio and rely more on research and conviction? Well, you know, I, that's a great question. I think intuitively you might think, yeah, you want to have lots of shots. Hmm. But the kinds of businesses that really have these 100-bagger attributes is small. And when you really do the work on it and you're looking for businesses that can generate high returns of capital, reinvest it, great balance sheets, competitive positions, all the stuff you got to do. It's not a very big list you're going to have. And so, and also how much, you know, how many names can you follow and really research? Mm. So there are different ways to do it, I suppose. You could try a dartboard kind of approach where you, yeah, you take tiny positions and a lot of things that seem like they might have shots at being hundred baggers, but I prefer to do more concentrated portfolio mm. where you've dug in and you know the names very well because you're going to be tested as we just talked about. You're going to mm. have drawdowns. And if you don't know the names well, you know, how are you going to stick with them? How are you going to know when it's a good time to add and when it isn't? Mm, so yeah. I prefer concentrated. My own portfolio right now, I have 10 stocks. 10. Okay, that's very concentrated. I mean, I usually advocate people don't go any less than 12. And my yeah. personal top limit is somewhere between 20 and 30. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm happy at 25 positions. Beyond that, it's starting to get yeah. a little bit stressful. Everyone's a little different on that. So you, it's kind of a personal, you know, personal choice, but something, you know, something around there. Yeah. Stephen Garrity asked via Twitter, very interested to hear Chris's thoughts on the market and the effect current world events may have in respect to a growth portfolio that's already down 40%. How to navigate back into positive territory? Right. Well, hopefully you have done your work ahead of time and you own things that you're pretty confident in that are going to be worth more a decade now from when you bought them and and uh, they're generating good cash flow and they're still uh, still performing. And this is what's interesting about this particular environment now is I think it's been easier than past bear markets I've been in. And assuming this does become a bear market, it's not really that yet. It's just a kind of a correction. But is the underlying companies are still doing very well. I mean, I, I get earnings reports. They're all great. They're all mm. excellent. So it's not even like March of 2020 where you got some reports and there was major things happening, you know. You could see it in the fundamentals. This has yeah. been different. This has really been not that way. So yeah, I'd say, you know, you stick to your guns as long as your thesis is intact. Now, there was a lot of high growth names that traded at crazy prices and that weren't making any money and, and got way ahead of themselves. So hopefully, uh, you know, some of those are never going to come back. Let's just say like a Peloton, you know, that's never going to get back to where it was. That business has been compromised. But, um, you know, I own a stock like, say, Copart. It was $150. Yeah. Got as low as 106. I'm not worried about that. Yeah, no, great business. Great yeah, business. Great. I, I chuckled when you said Peloton because regular listeners to the listeners to the podcast will know that my colleague and our chief analyst at my Wall Street, Rory, was a Peloton bull all the way up, 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 up. <laughs> and you know, so in every podcast, <laughs> Peloton is raised, and this is no exception. So well done, thank you. And, we, and this, <laughs> I say it to prove to our listeners I did not tee you up to mention Peloton. Um <laughs> That's great. So Chris Fergal Burke asked, he said, I'd be quite interested in finding out Chris's approach to regularly evaluating a position as it grows over time. So you've gone up the aisle, you've married the business. What do you do then? Yes. Well, uh, most of my American names, they report quarterly. So I certainly will check in at a minimum every quarter, which is means, you know, reading the filing, getting at least a transcript of the call if they if they hold one and and that would be the minimum um, I know 
number of European companies that report, you know, mid-year and that's it. And uh, that's fine. I like that too. And then, you know, as long as things are going well, that's all you need to do really. Mm-hmm. You know, Buffett had a funny line once where he was on an interview with, I think it was Andy Surer, who asked him about Apple and said something like, well, you know, how closely do you follow the company? And Buffett said, well, not too closely. He said, if I have to follow too closely, probably shouldn't own it, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, if you're, yeah, if you do all that work up front, then a quarterly kind of check in is probably at least the minimum uh, is probably good enough. Amen, brother. Totally agree. Totally agree. Chris, Mark C via Twitter said, and you answer this in your book, I'm I'm quite, well, I know you do, but I'll read it anyway. It says, is there a trend in the type and stage of an industry where 100 baggers can be found? For example, a tech enhancement to an existing market rather than an already established saturated market. I'm assuming disruption provides the opportunity, but interested to know if that's the reality. Well, this is a good good question, and, uh, and I do talk about this in the book, and, and mm-hmm. this is one of the things that sort of surprised me a little bit, is that you would sort of expect to see some industry concentration. Like you would expect to see yeah. tech dominate the list, but it wasn't the case. Uh, it was amazing. There were baggers, yeah, all kinds of industries, some of them very, very simple industries. So, yeah, it seems to be that industry is not as important, and I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't focus on that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Actually, that's really great. Uh, if you ask me, I won't dive into it. I think that's great. So uh, research interests, again, by Twitter asked, how do you build a position? Do you start out small? Do you grow in thirds? Do you grow along with your conviction? Talk to us about how you go from stop to go to keep going. Yeah, well, it sort of sometimes depends on the, on the situation, whether if it's a company I've known really well and I've known it for a long time and I get a chance to own it. I may be more aggressive in building that position than something that's newer to me. But ideally, I step something up pretty quickly to 3 to 5%. And, and then, yeah, sort of watch and follow and kind of deepen my understanding of the business and, and work it up to, for me, would be a full position, be something like 8 or 9%. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, it sort of grows into that, you know, as we go along. Um, but mm-hmm. that's, that's how I think about it. Mm. So when one of those eight or nine percent, this is my own question, this doesn't come from Twitter. So when you have built to a full position, and are you comfortable in eight years, 10 years from now, it occupying 30 or 40 percent of your portfolio? And if so, do you do something about it? Yes. Um, so I'm OK if it gets lopsided over, you know, over time, which I expect mm. would happen. So right now, uh, the Woodlock House portfolio is still immature because I've Fund's only three years old. And so these a lot of these positions are still bunched up between like eight and I think the biggest position, maybe is 11 and a half, you know, mm-hmm. grew to that. And I expect as it ages, you know, somebody's going to emerge and will, it might dominate and become 20% of the portfolio, as you as you suggest. If I were an individual investor, I might be more tolerant about letting, letting things get really big. Um, but in my fund, there is a limit of 25% is how big a position can oh, get. So that's very uh, once it gets to 25, I will be pulling, I will be taking it down to keep it under that limit. But that is, as we say in the U.S., a high-class problem. And, uh, oh, isn't it just <laughs> such a first-world problem? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, it's a very, that's a very interesting approach um, because the portfolio that I own and 
uh, that is a service in, in my Wall Street is called Horizon. It is exactly as you described, an early stage portfolio. Nothing has popped. Nothing occupies more than, a, uh, uh, I'd say, about 8% of the folio. And I fully expect a couple of those to grow and grow and grow and end up 20, 30, 40% of the folio. But I look forward to that quality problem as, exactly. as do very many of, many of our subscribers, I know. Yeah, me um, too. Me too. I remember one, one portfolio <laughs> manager, I, I know, is retired now, but he was very successful. And he likes to tell a story about how he had Walmart from early on. And he, he also had a limit of how big it could get. I don't know what, it, let's say it was 20% or something like that. And Walmart, you know, was one of these that just did well for so long. He was just constantly selling it selling little pieces of it, you know, year after year after year after year to keep under the 20 limit. I thought, well, that's a good problem to have. And of course, then you look back, if he had just let that Walmart position go, he would have it would have become, you know, the biggest position in his portfolio. And, and the track record of Walmart was better than his fund, you know, so it's sort of funny how that works yeah. out. Yeah. I'm not a fan of haircuts along the way. I really am. I've made so many mistakes there. Yeah. Uh, I'd be such a Tesla multi, multi, multi-millionaire had I yeah. not you know, trimmed it as I went along. But yeah, I don't like trimming either. Absolutely. So I have a question. I've only a couple more questions, Chris, and then I'll bring it back on uh, to a few more that I have here before we let you off. Johnny Delaney, well, you actually have answered Johnny's question. Daniel Murphy asked, along the way, this actually, I like this question because I know what you're going to say and I know it has to be said. Along the way to your stocks becoming 100 baggers, did any of them ever drop over 50%? And did you have the urge to sell? Yes. So the looking at the hundred bagger study, there were frequent drawdowns mm-hmm. uh, of fifty percent. Uh, I like to tell people, uh, you know, the best performing stock in the study over the half century that I covered was Berkshire Hathaway, and Berkshire Hathaway was cut in half at least three times. Mm-hmm. So, and there was one stretch, seven year stretch, where it went nowhere. Wow. So think about that. That's the best. You know, you you have to go through the drawdowns and some of the other drawdowns on other names are more spectacular. If we talk about Amazon or Apple, you're talking about, you know, they've had 80 percent you know, drawdowns. But all of the hundred baggers have had significant, significant drawdowns, meaning at least a third, you know, and many of them have been cut in half some point or other in their life. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's part of the the I don't know what you call it. This is the suffering we have to do as long-term <laughs> yeah. investors. That, and then I wouldn't underestimate the boredom part either. The other part is lots of these names went through stretches where they didn't go anywhere. Oh. And I know it can be very, very hard to hold a name for two, three years where it's gone nowhere and everyone else's stocks are going up, other stocks here before going up. You have this fatigue that, that kicks in, but that, that's also part of it. I find that the hardest. Yes. Uh, I said, I think, I think I was, did I say on a podcast recently? Or was I just thinking to myself that I held Activision at $11 forever? <laughs> it just sat $11 and there's nothing you can assimilate. You can't yeah. say, well, this has moved into bargain territory or you can't <laughs> slap yeah. yourself in the back for a good call. I think it's torture. I really do. I hate when stock is flat for years. Me too. It's tough. Nothing to digest. I'm going to close with one last question from from one of our listeners from Preston who said, simple question, what is the sweet spot of the initial market cap for a potential 100 bagger? I know you talk about this in your book, but let's yeah, just... Yeah, in the book at the time, I think it was around 350 million was kind of mm-hmm. the median. So, so, you know, you might think... yeah. Market caps have risen since then. I, I'd say something less than a billion would, mm. you know, probably that sweet spot. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So, Chris, um, have you managed, uh, just as we're, we're toggling away from our listeners' questions, so have you managed to completely divorce yourself from your emotions or do they still play a role 
in assessing companies you own? Because as we discussed, you kind of grow up with these companies. You have the shoebox in the corner full of their quarterly or annual reports. Yeah. And a relationship of sorts is formed. Have you managed to divorce yourself from that very real human emotion? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. I don't think you ever fully divorce yourself because you can't be a robot, right? You're going to yeah. have these emotions. Um, yeah. You just have to figure out ways to sort of deal with them. So mm. recognize when you're frustrated and angry and recognize, you know, don't do anything, at least when you're feeling those emotions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you never really divorce yourself from it. It can still be, yeah, your emotions still will, will haunt you and yeah. tug you in different directions. And that's one of the other difficult things about investing is keeping a cool head. Isn't that the truth? Um, but those emotions can play to our advantage because we're human beings. We can override bad decisions with emotion. Mm -hmm. And I think, but I, I agree with you. I, I find it very difficult to say goodbye to a stock, which is probably a, a behavior I've cultivated over very many years. It would be remiss of me not to ask you the question that I'm sure you're asked the most. So get ready for it. It's like a train coming down a track. And it's the same question as I asked Chuck Acre way back when, which was, what stocks do you like today? Or better still, which on your watch list have the attributes of a 100 bagger? Right. Well, yeah, everyone likes to ask that question. So I, I don't know. I, I have, I, I'll give you the smallest market cap name I have, and a name I think has a lot of attributes, and, and uh, is Topicus, which is a Constellation software spinoff and uh, trades in Canada. So most of the business is mostly in the Netherlands and Northern Europe. It's a vertical market software business, just like constellation the same kind of dna and we all know how successful constellation has been mm -hmm. and though this is like a, a mini constellation of europe so uh, i think that has many of the attributes i, I like that one a lot and it's been Watch very volatile here in the early going but i'm, I'm gonna mm -hmm. own it for a good decade and see see where we go yeah watch that stock pop when this podcast goes live. <laughs> <laughs> great and i love that i'm i i whenever i have a moment of doubt and i look at a stock i go yeah i'll give it another 10 years yeah so, <laughs> yeah everyone should know i own it so if you're going to run out there you know but it's down quite a bit so it's also a good one to mention chris let me many hit of these you. growth stocks yeah for sure okay well on that let me hit you with just two sets of five stocks and in each case can you tell me which you believe has the best chance of growing meaningfully? And I presume you haven't memorized every stock in the world. Uh, right. I'll give you that, but let's okay. just say. So what we're trying to find from these two piles of five is which would you put in your coffee can portfolio that's left alone for 25 years in the hope that when we open it up, it's up a hundredfold or somewhere near that. Okay, are you ready? Fire away. Okay, first five names are... Airbnb, Lemonade, Teladoc, Upstart, and Etsy. So Airbnb, Lemonade, Teladoc, Upstart, and Etsy. So can I start by asking you, do you know those five companies? I do. Okay. I do. So, and in fact, I've looked briefly at almost all of them. I would say because I have a prejudice against companies that aren't making money, that will knock out several of those. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Upstart and Etsy are the money makers. Yeah. I think I would probably go with Etsy. Etsy has the highest return on equity. It has there you a 70, go. How about that? 72% return on equity. So you're good. You're good. You're right. ready for another five? All right. Let's go another one. <laughs> I, 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 you know, when I wrote these names down a few minutes before we went live, I said, he's going to go with Etsy. And <laughs> All right. Let's see if I can, if my predictive powers work this time. So we're going to go with another five. SoFi, 
DocuSign, InMode, Zoom, everybody knows Zoom, and Brown and Brown. So, SoFi, DocuSign, InMode, Zoom, Brown and Brown. Do you know those five companies? And I know as a fact you know Brown and Brown because I saw you talk about it on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, this is the one where I'm going to have to go with Brown and Brown because I own it. <laughs> 15% return on equity. Yeah, I owned it since the inception of the fund, and it's more than doubled since. And this is one where, you know, it's not only the return on equity, but it's the ability to reinvest. And in Brown and Brown's case, they're able to reinvest mm. basically, you know, all their free cash flow. Mm. Um, so they're very, uh, also very predictable and consistent about it. So that those numbers will pile up. And if you look at Brown and Brown's track record, you know, since I guess the early 90s, they've been public. It's probably not, not quite a hundred bagger yet, but it's got to be close. It's got to be close. The other, the other names, um, yeah, I don't know as well. I, I did look at InMode. That's an interesting mm. name. Um, so the first one, I don't know. Mm. So far, uh, California-based neobank, uh, DocuSign, I'm pretty sure you yeah, know. Yes, DocuSign, sure. Yeah, InMode is a wonderful business. It's Israeli-based medtech mm -hmm. business with robotics it's software for... Um, really good business on the numbers. I remember that. Really good business on the numbers. I, my bet was you were going to pick in mode. So it has wonderful numbers. It's a great Yes, it probably has the best numbers of that group. I would I would give you that. Mm -hmm. Chris, I could talk stocks with you all day and I would enjoy every minute of it, of it. But due to the constraints of time and our podcast deadlines, I'm going to have to leave it there. And thank you for speaking with me today. Emmett, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Good, good to be on. Thank you. I'd like to remind our listeners that all of Chris Mayer's books, including 100 Baggers, are available in most local bookstores and needless to say on Amazon. Chris, I'll see you again soon. All right. Thank you, Emmett. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.